Welcome to the Jewelry Connoisseur Podcast. And now your host, Sonia Esther-Soltani. Hi, welcome to Jewelry Connoisseur Podcast. I'm your host today, Sonia Esther-Soltani. I'm the Editor-in-Chief at Rappaport and at Jewelry Connoisseur. And I'm very happy to be joined today for our first podcast by Ronald Kavitsky from DK Bressler. Hi, Ronald. How are you? Fine, thank you. Fine. Nice talking to you. And it's early here in New York, I guess, but um, all good. Fantastic. So what I would like to start is you telling us about the history of DK Bressler. How did you start? It's an established name in the estate jewelry world. Tell us a bit more about, about the, your company and what you're doing. Well, um, I had a love of jewelry, of antique jewelry in particular, since I was very young, under 13. And it was something I always wanted to do. But when I was growing up, that was not an option. We had to be professional lawyers, accountants, doctors kind of thing. But when I found myself unemployed at some time, probably 35 years ago, um, I thought, well, let's give it a shot and try something new. And I've loved it and enjoyed myself ever since. It goes back to like... Um, 1989, something like that, 1988. So, Ronald, how is it to enter an industry where you have no connection, I'm assuming, and you're the first generation? No connections and a and father who wasn't too happy about this. He figured after paying for an accountancy degree for seven years and a master's degree, that should have been more than good enough. Jewelry was something you, you know, you bought your wife a present once a year for her birthday and a nice piece of jewelry, that was it. But um, he couldn't understand that you could actually make a living out of out of, out of the antique jewelry particularly, mm. which wasn't seen as having value like with big diamonds or a name or something else. So that was a bit of a challenge. It took time, but... Um, Lucky things progressed quite quickly and he got to appreciate it in, in time and he was enthusiastic and supportive. It was rough going in the beginning, though, I tell you. How did you get started? Obviously, there was something that you were interested in, but how do you gather the knowledge, but also the, the pieces that you start a business with? I was always a, a history nerd, um, big time. So... Um, uh, knowing about antique jewelry and knowing about provenance and everything else seemed very easy to me because if you understand the sociology and the the time and the background historically, getting to jewelry is just another process. You could have been dealing in 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 fabrics or costume or antique furniture or silver or anything else. It all makes sense in its context in its time context. You know, classical jewelry is like from eighteen oh five, and if you understand. Napoleonic dress and historical references, you'd understand why they used, for example, why cameos were popular for that time, because it was a neoclassical Roman revival thing. It seemed to make sense. So it was a niche that wasn't fully covered, which was just happenstance. But I guess I brought along a certain expertise that people weren't used to having. It wasn't about diamonds. It was about context. And you could go to the Metropolitan Museum and see paintings of people wearing jewelry and how they wore it and why they wore it and everything else. It became fascinating to me. The more we specialized, the better it was. And now we have quite an extensive business that ranges from sometimes you know, historic stuff, Roman, first century AD, up to 
80, I guess, you know, even more when it's entirely contemporary and of the, of the time. And how did you choose your name, DK Bressler? Family initials. I started the business with my, my late wife and um, we put together initials. I mean, if you wanted to be funny, we could have put uh, DK Bressler, London, New York, Paris, Minsk or something like that. We thought mm -hmm. it would be amusing. And the name just stuck. It was her maiden name and family initials on my side. You know, people can't spell very well. And if you say Kavitsky, you get so many variations on the spelling. It was easier to work with Bressler, which was my wife's maiden name. I see. And you started the business with your wife. Yes. Yes. Do you remember the first piece you two found that you felt, wow, this is something very special? Yes, there were lots of special things back in those days. Not too many people were interested in, in it. So when I went to a little uh, sort of schoolhouse show in Westchester County, uh, New York, and there was a little old antique dealer who I'm still friendly with to this day, and she had this wonderful, wonderful bead necklace that was French, and it was jade beads and enamel and gold and everything, and it was sitting in the case. I thought, this is so amazing. It's exactly what deco jewelry is, and here's a perfect example of a deco piece of jewelry. And sure enough, we bought it, and it wasn't very expensive, and it had French marks and all the other things that tell you about its provenance, and we bought it, and uh, actually, we never sold it. My wife wore it always, and um, it's quite a wonderful piece of jewelry still to this day. How beautiful. Very meaningful as well. Yeah, yes. Did you know from the start, I mean, you said you're covering such a, a big, big um, timeline from, uh, from ancient jewelry to 1980s. When did you broaden your offering or did you see because the market actually became more interested in having this big range or was it your personal journey through estate jewelry that took you there? It was my personal journey. You know, um, the touchstone that we all used about buying something, we'd look at something and say, we're not exactly sure about value because that takes time to build up that knowledge um, and it needs time to deal with things and handle things to know what they're worth in, in the marketplace. We would look at each other and say, well, you know, if, if we didn't sell it, if we didn't sell the piece, would you be happy to wear that? And if the answer came back, yes, we'd be happy to wear that and keep it. That was the time to buy it. And those are the pieces that always sold first, the pieces that you I don't care whether I buy it or, or if, if I never sell it. You know, it's just good psychology. For sure. And do you see, do you, how do you see the, the market change since the late Um, 1980s. It feels like such a revival of estate jewelry and such an interest from a wider audience. Do, do you see that on your on your day to day dealings? It's changed tremendously. There used to be many, many more people dealing in antique jewelry. It was like a whole sub genre of, of antique of, of estate jewelry, I should say, because there was always estate jewelry, which is the last 30, 40, 50 years or even less. But there wasn't too much in real estate jewelry. There were many, many... Funny enough, um, many school teachers who I became super friendly with who understood the historical context and bought and sold jewelry and always attended these little shows that used to dot New York region. And it's become, it's become more specialized, it's, but there's a shortage of good merchandise, whether it's because people don't part with the stuff 
I don't know, but there just seems to be such a shortage. When I was young and 16 and going to London and stuff, um, you went to the marketplace and you could have spent, if I had a fraction of those items now, they would be considered marvelous. And yet they don't reappear. Great Victorian stuff doesn't come up like it used to. So whether many dealers are just sitting on their hoards or it'll yet to come to market, I don't know. But the jewelry business is becoming to be, I see it becoming much, much more appreciated. I think people are finally realizing that the techniques used in making a piece of jewelry could, cannot be duplicated today. And there's tremendous value in that, you know. Um, and you see that among younger customers as well? Or who are who are the customers who seem to appreciate the the unique features of uh, piece of face jewelry or antique jewelry? Well, it's actually wonderfully enough. It's the young. It's a fairly young thing. Young women buying for themselves, between even twenty five to forty, they make money themselves and they spend it and they collect it, which is kind of fantastic, really. Mm-hmm. I also find there's a lot of repurposing of jewelry now as well. People, which is kind of acceptable as a as a purist, you kind of look at it askance, and then you think, if not for people wanting and collecting the old pieces, even if they're slightly repurposed, we would lose something. And I'm grateful that there is interest, interesting interest, even in things like memorial jewelry, which could be seen as goth, as literally goth fashion instead of. Dead person's jewelry, which many people still sort of think it's gross if there's hair in the back of a piece of jewelry, and if you know what I mean. Yes, and um, actually, I saw that it's becoming popular again among uh, contemporary designers. They start to use hair uh, again in uh, in jewelry as a, I guess, an homage or a reinterpretation of uh, Victorian jewelry when it was. So that's that's quite interesting how the how fashion comes back again and again. Actually, just to decompose the different periods, uh, what kind of jewelry do you see these women between, let's say, 25 and 40, as you mentioned, being interested in? Well, actually, heavy-duty antique pieces, mm-hmm. things like cameo rings, cameo necklaces, that, that, that subgenre, again, was not fully appreciated. I mean, there are plenty of tacky examples of, of cameo, but the really good, good things have become suddenly appreciated. It's, it's fantastic, really wonderful to see. Um, but there have been many trends since the late 80s that have come and gone. French jewelry has always been appreciated, but never more so than now. Many, many more books are being written on different collections of antique jewelry. So that really helps a lot. People like provenance, people like to know. Mm-hmm. People are collecting esoteric things like royal presentation jewelry, which I have quite a few pieces of. People are very enthusiastic about a piece that was given when Prince Albert died, you know, Queen Victoria's husband. That kind of thing has become more and more fascinating, and I get calls for that, and there are many ivory miniature rings, people's portraits, silhouettes. It's terrific. There's mm-hmm. a demand for it all, which is nice and a pleasure to see. And when you mentioned French jewellery, you mean also from the a contemporary period as in Victorian Victorian England or for another from another period? 
French story, no. Um, French and English tracked each other the whole time. What we called, what the French called empire, we called neoclassic. You know, what we call late Victorian, they would call Belle Epoque. It was just a different thing. They tracked each other quite closely. Mm-hmm. But they were the finest, I would say, manufacturers and the most well-regulated of the jewelry manufactured industry, if you call it that, you know. For sure, sure. But French always always had the highest standard, the higher standards and the more refined taste, I think. So the the periods we're talking about, Victorian age and Belle Epoque, um, is there anything else that you see people being interested in or having a new appreciation for? Yes, Victorian diamond jewelry, actually. You know, the the trend now of, well, it's kind of over a little bit now, but we still get requests. Stars and crescents, for example, that was a big Victorian motif. Mm-hmm. They've been repurposed. People didn't know what to do. Now I see three or four mold, diamond Maltese crosses hanging on an antique watch chain. It's kind of... As I said, it's kind of a bit of a setback for purists. On the other hand, the pleasure of enjoying things, I think, outweighs the the preciousness of the design and the period thing, if you know what I mean. Yes, for sure. You said earlier that there were fewer dealers today than there used to be. Yes, there's unfortunately there has been a gap. When I when I started, there were many, mainly women actually, many many women who were very involved and the, they had customers that you knew. If you found silhouette um, rings, you had a customer for sure. Many of them have collections of everything, and they're not looking at so much anymore. So we really have to re-educate um, a whole new group of people coming into the marketplace and I think that's what we're doing that's why many of these things have been repurposed when you mean educate you mean the the customers or the other dealers like a younger generation of dealers both both mm-hmm. and what, what would you say to to someone like you who just would like to enter the market as an estate dealer in in 2020 someone who also comes from a different background who maybe is currently considering not being an accountant I think it's quite a difficult thing to get into at the moment. But mm-hmm. I think that the jewelry business as such, in, in the antique field at least I can speak, I think is doing better and better. I think people are appreciating more and more that it can't be duplicated. It's not even about um, intrinsic value. It's about style and fashion and everything else. And I would think that it's a little difficult to get into the business actually at, the, at present. It takes time, it takes study, it takes handling a lot of objects, and there's not that much of it for sale. I guess that's also part of the the whole picture, is um, being a dealer is actually finding the, the pieces. So is it, um, and you, you mentioned a shortage, for example, of Victorian pieces, is it, how do you source the jewelry? Well, we have a bit of an advantage that we've known had the supplies sometimes for many years mm-hmm. and we can go back and tap our sources and we also know also know where many of the good pieces are um, where many good pieces are in collections and stuff books come out with names and you can track that down and we have customers that still collect super special things but 
It's not easy, but you know what? It probably never was easy, but just go looking back in hindsight, hindsight is always easy. You know, we, mm-hmm. we should have known, we could have known. I'm contradicting myself, forgive me. But That's it all. It's not, a, it's not a clear answer. It's not a clear thing. I'm, I'm... I guess but the market is still so much evolving as well. And, and especially today, we're recording in such a climate of uncertainty that it's... Um... Exactly. Seems a little frivolous sometimes, doesn't it? Yes. <laughs> But what's um, what was still very interesting is um, when you speak about collectors, do you see people coming to wear the jewelry or to actually create, um, as you say, a collection that, that's in a display case? Because some of the jewelry feels not something that you would you would wear, or maybe I'm completely wrong, and actually people would wear a very antique piece of jewelry that is dramatic. But um, what, what, what do you see? No, you're 100% right, in fact. Um, the biggest collections of jewelry are by people that never wear them, and mm-hmm. often men who love it and wouldn't let their wives wear it because they consider their wives in some case careless and they were you know as many of the pieces are extremely delicate they just collect them and put them away and appreciate them and admire them and swap and trade and it's kind of fantastic in a way Uh, some of my nicest sales, some of my best sales by Louis Comfort Tiffany, for example, go straight to men who hide it away and keep safes with fabulous collections of jewelry. You know, I think that in many cases, they, this is a generation that we're in, that we're passing now. It wasn't always priced that much. And when the kids today go to the safe deposit box and they don't find diamonds, they might not, and they're not desperate for money, they might not sell these antique objects so quickly. That's my impression. Mm-hmm. So in many cases, they don't need to. Money is not, a, not, not the difficult thing to find. They don't realize that there's so much value in some periods of antique jewelry. So they just sort of say, let it sit in the box another another while. And the, 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 the stuff you think would come back on the market continuously, and in fact, it doesn't come back on the market. And it's uh, where it is, is anyone's guess. It's, it's very strange. It's something I think of often. You know, normal back in the day, back 25 years ago, it was major pieces came up the whole time, but there seems to there appears to be a shortage of that at present. That's which is a, it is interesting. I don't know why fully. Maybe the kids don't need the money at this point, and they, like I imagine all these um, beautiful boxes full of amazing Tiffany jewelry, or <laughs> and <laughs> that someone thinks this uh, not just because there's no diamond on it. That's uh, <laughs> No, no. Oh, they're nightmare stories. Sonia, they're nightmare stories like that. Kids fighting over gold and diamond jewelry and they cut it to pieces and they take out diamonds worth $10 each. But the, the value is in the fact that it's signed French by famous makers with wonderful gold work and not appreciated. They're just torn, torn apart. Wow. Everyone has those nightmare stories. I'm sure. I'm sure. What, what's yours? Oh, a wonderful necklace by um, uh, a famous French designer, Viez, W-I-E-S-E. 
people came in and they, the kids were fighting, the, the children were fighting, and they got pliers and they cut the thing, the, the necklace up to get the little stones out. The, stone, the diamonds are worth, I don't know, $10 each. It was the whole piece and the beauty of the piece and the signature and the gold work, which was spectacular, and they were throwing it on the scale and disappeared. Oh, that's painful. Painful. Oh, my God. The piece was museum quality. Wow. <laughs> wow. Tell me, did you still have time to go to the Met? Yes, very much so. Very much so. And talking, education. talking about museum quality, do you, what, what, which piece do you see there as your um, wonder, personal wonder? Oh, that's a that's a question. Um, you know, every age and every time has its merits and demerits. Bad jewelry in the 19th century or the 18th or the 17th was bad then. It's bad now. I can show you some pieces of jewelry that I antique that I antique. I mean, more than a hundred years old, and they are. <laughs> You cannot tell the age. You cannot tell the time. There's a bracelet that looks retro, that looks like 1950. In fact, it's 1850. And you think, oh, my God, you think everything is new? There's not much that is new. Good is good in any age, and it's just phenomenal. Classical is classical at any at any time, and quality is quality at any time. And I like the best of every, of every age and every epoch, I guess. But my personal favorite? Yes. Probably... Probably high Victorian. Mm-hmm. They were very strong design sense, wonderfully wonderful use of stones, very dramatic, very revival jewelry, um, Italian revival, Roman revival with cameos, are fantastic. They're all individual works of art. They're all, you know, <laughs> no one would ever copy or reproduce a cameo because the time and energy it would take, it wouldn't be worth what it's worth at the end. We're dealing in, in, in the quality that you can't duplicate today. No one's going to spend, you know, three weeks carving a, a, a cameo in the Roman style. People just don't have the time or the patience or the energy. Mm, and they don't appreciate also the art form. The art form is spectacular. That's actually something interesting. We had um, a conversation uh, previously about um, lab-grown diamonds. And um, I asked you, do you see lab-grown diamonds being inserted in um, antique or estate jewelry? And back then you told me no, because it takes it's, it's too complicated with the, the setting and it, it would... It would require too much work, actually, for people to even um, bother putting, exactly. exchanging lab grown for for natural diamonds. Is it? Uh, can you can you tell us a bit more about this? Well, um, that's a sticky business, and it's not really. That's really not the business that I'm in at all. Um, lab grown. I mean, the concept is frightening because it means that you can't even rely upon the assurance of natural stones, mm-hmm. um, and you can't often tell the difference, which is. A little terrifying, but thank goodness I'm not in that market because my expertise would go to, is the antique piece correct for its time? Has it been fiddled with? Has it been repaired? Has it been damaged? The idea of having to go back and examine early diamonds, I think I think the antique business has dodged that bullet, frankly, mm. because I think that it's not about... The diamond, it's about the 
workmanship, the quality, the correctness for, for its age and its time, um, way more important than, than diamonds. Even though I'm sure there'll be someone that'll be able to use them at some time, or even I believe the Indian market now sort of obviously has always made rose cut, has always cut rose cut stones, and hopefully they haven't got around to inserting them in period pieces yet. That's a dangerous topic, though. I think you know everyone has everyone has strong opinions on that. Actually, when you see a piece coming, is it? Um... What was the first thing you consider if if it has and if it's authentic? Obviously, what 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 other criteria do you do you look at? Has it been repaired badly or at all? There are many telltale marks. So you have to know about style. Could mm-hmm. a style like this ever been ever have been used in the nineteenth century? In many cases, no. And many dealers aren't fully aware to this day of what old means. Maybe they think like very old is. 10 years, brand new, it's still, still still, warm, if you know what I mean. And they don't understand context and they don't understand that value. And in many cases, you see things where stones have been ripped out of, they've taken a stone and recut it when in fact the beauty is in the old cut of the stone. They just don't see it and they don't appreciate it fully and there's no historical context. And many of these people have been in the business 50 years, 60 years, and they still don't understand. They're still... Come and ask me: Is it old? Is it new? What's it worth? You know, and they've been in the business, so they must have passed such beautiful things without realizing what they were. But I guess that's what keeps us all in business, no? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Especially the the passion of uh, of knowledge and uh, understanding exactly. of, of the. If everyone knew everything, no, we would never be able to make a make a living. <laughs> <laughs> And Ronald, um, before we we close this uh, really, really interesting conversation, I would like to know what at the moment at DK Bressler is the the star piece, something that is uh, really, really a special piece for you. Some wonderful art deco brooches that I've come across recently. One black diamond onyx and platinum piece, which looks to me like a work of modern art by de Chirico, except this is like 1920 French and de Chirico was in the in the 50s. Just wonderful design, strong design, um, figural, interesting. I don't know. I was captivated by it. It's not an easy piece to sell because of, because of the design itself, but it just grabs the fantasy out of you, if you know what I mean. You, you did. You really conveyed it beautifully. Is there anything else that you, you would like to, to share with our, with our listeners today to, about what's happening in estate jewelry, what, what you see 2020, something that you would like um, to, to close this, this podcast with? Buy things that you love. Look at workmanship. Um, just because it's old doesn't make it good. These are just the the, the captions I want to give you. Um, uh, buy the best, buy the best or the sign, and it will always hold its value. It's such an underappreciated asset. Antique jewelry has out be, has beaten out the market every time, has exceeded the market every time. It buy what you love. Enjoy wearing it. 
if you love it enough, somebody else will love it more and you can always sell it. But meanwhile, you get a lot of pleasure handling it and knowing that it's survived the ages. God knows these pieces have survived famine and flood and the fire, the great fires of whatever. And it's just a pleasure to be able to wear something with with provenance and workmanship and uh, it's about the continuation of our species in many ways especially given the times as they are at the moment it's life affirming in many ways might be a little too extreme to talk about antique jewelry like this but i on some level it is carries on where we leave off i love to this life affirming quality of uh, of jewelry and antique jewelry i think there's uh there's there's something very powerful in it, and I think that's that's where the attraction and the appeal is. So, and I think your your passion and your enthusiasm has really come across um, amazingly. So, thank you so much, Ronald. Thanks for joining us at the Jewelry Connoisseur Podcast. If you enjoyed this and would like more top quality jewelry content, check out the Jewelry Connoisseur blog at jewelryconnoisseur.net. 